Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. If you like what you hear today, visit my Fertile Ground Communications page on Patreon in the show notes and find out how you can support my work. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I'm fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on Fertile Ground Communications. I have a passion for companies that care and give back to their communities. So I'm starting a new podcast, Companies That Care, to highlight those leaders in the industry. If you know of someone who is leading a company that is changing the world in the areas of sustainability, philanthropy, community involvement, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, please send me their name. On to today's episode. Today, I interview Shannon Whaley, who overcame sexual abuse and assault, a toxic childhood, and drug and alcohol abuse. In 2013, she sold everything and moved to the Cayman Islands and then to Italy in 2017. She is a business and visibility coach and teaches people how to turn their stories into sales. She works with folks who have gone through hell and back and have a story to tell the world. I posted photos and further details about Shannon on my website, including links to her website. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome Shannon. Hello, Shannon. Thank you so much for being on the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I really have been excited to talk to you. So let's start out with your childhood. Can you tell us about your childhood, where you grew up and what your childhood and family origin was like? I was like, we're just going to get right into it. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into the gritty. Yes. So I grew up in Southern California and I was born in Pasadena. I have an older brother and my parents were married and I believe by... I don't know, six months, they were already splitting up. And so I come from a divorced family and then a meshed or a blended family. So my mom married my stepdad a couple of years later and then had my younger brother and sister. So my older brother and I are from first husband, other two kids are from second husband. Yeah. And so we moved even further down into Southern California, this little town called Temecula. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My stepdad, who was basically, he's my dad. So, um, and he was a truck driver. Between, you know, divorced family, there was also sexual abuse in the family and outside of the family that I endured, dealt with. So it was a very, you know, troubled childhood. And then all the things that come with childhood trauma just kind of unfolded as I got older. Are you comfortable sharing your sexual abuse story, how old you were and what happened? I don't remember how old I was because it just was kind of always happening. Um, And so I don't have a moment where I remember like the first time it was just, that was just kind of what happened. You know, there were other moments like with a neighbor where some abuse happened. Unfortunately, that was just the way that things were like, that was just life. I didn't know anything other than that. So it was, yeah, it was happening really early on. From a family member, a trusted mm-hmm. family member. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it was sort of your way of life in a way. You didn't know that it was the way it wasn't supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. You know, like something's off, but like you yeah. don't really know. And then, you know, I knew enough not to like tell anybody, but there was definitely the, the all the signs, all the symptoms were there from when I was a very young child and acting out sexually and getting in trouble and, you know, all of that stuff. And Unfortunately, you know, the adults in my life either looked away or they just put their head in the sand or just ignored it. Oh, my goodness. And how old were you when you realized that that this wasn't Mm -hmm. the way it was supposed to be? I don't know. Maybe when I was like nine or 10, like realizing like, I don't think this is happening in other families. Like I didn't, it didn't seem like that was something other families seemed like quote unquote normal. And 
Actually, I do remember having a conversation with friends when I was younger, and both of those conversations were with friends whose family members were also abusing them. Oh, Mm -hmm. so you were able to talk to somebody else who was experiencing it. Right. But it was just like, yep, this happens. And so it didn't go past like... You know, I wonder if I had talked to friends who were like, this is so not okay. Mm-hmm. We need to tell my mom, like, what the trajectory of my life would have looked like. Yeah. But instead, you know, the the two friends that I recall telling confirmed that this was happening. And it was just kind of like, that's just kind of how things are. Oh, my God. It's probably just kind of similar to somebody learning about sex. You know, mm-hmm. most people learn about sex and they're shocked. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's the way of life. And for you, it was... Yeah, mm-hmm. everybody experiences sexual abuse. Oh, wow. What a mm-hmm. what a hard way to start life. Boy. Absolutely, yeah. And did you at any point try to talk to your mom about it? Uh, no, not. I mean, it was it's one of those things like as I got older, I realized like this is not something that we talk about. I've gone through many years of therapy, many years of EMDR and talk therapy. And what I realized was that The message was sent to me that like this was not to be talked about and the things that I was doing to act out, I was getting in trouble for and, you know, obviously didn't feel like a safe place to share. You know, the message that I got was that I wasn't going to be believed Mm -hmm. because like, here's me crying, like screaming out for help and nobody was listening. Parents, grandparents, teachers, you know, like throughout the years. So it's like, well, to me, like that was me saying or telling like in my kid way, like help, this Mm -hmm. is what's happening. Right. And so I think what happened was I was like, well, no one's believing this acting out. So I'm just not going to talk about it. Oh my gosh. That's so sad. I feel so sad for the little Shannon. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. You must yeah. not have felt like you had any safe space in your life. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Did you have any anybody in your life that you could talk to? No. No, nobody. Mm-mm. So all of your family members really, none of them were really anybody that you felt like you could trust. And right. That's really it, sad. Yeah. I didn't have, you know, trusted older people in my life. So it was very isolating. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of, you know, took on that persona of like, that hyper independence of like, I can do all of this on my own. Like I don't need anybody because I learned really early that nobody's to be trusted. Uh Yeah. So you then left home for college when you were fairly young at 17. Yeah. So my birthday's in late August. I was an October baby. So back then the cutoff was really like November. So I was 17 when I left as well. And so what was that like to leave home? Oh my God. And like that Mel Gibson in what's the movie where he's like, freedom. Oh, I bet. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So I knew that college was literally the only way that I was going to be able to get out of that house, to get out of the town and thank the stars aligned. Like I am so thankful over and over again, because there was like no way that I would have been accepted into college now. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, God, no. Like my grades were awful. I don't even know what like my GPA was, but my like my SAT scores were laughable. I think I got like, I don't know, 750 total. I was just like not thriving in school. I could not wait to get out of there. I was accepted on a contingency plan. Like I had to go to summer school at a junior college in order to be like fully accepted. So like when I got in and first day on campus, I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you universe. Because I knew that that was my way out. And I knew that I would never return, like never Mm -hmm. live at home ever again. Mm -hmm. I I would sleep in my car, sleep on couches. Like there's no way that I would, would return home again. Did you go back for summers at all or? No, actually. What I did was my first year of college, I was in the dorms and, you know, everything shuts down during the summer. So 
I was supposed to go home for the summer. And I was like, this is just not even an option. And so I don't know how I got this idea, but I decided to be a camp counselor (laughs) and applied and got it. And so I was a camp counselor for three months in Freedom, Maine. Oh, I always wanted to be a camp counselor. You did. It had never been on my radar. It was literally like, what can I do for three months to not have to live here? And that Mm -hmm. was all that it was between that or like park ranger in Utah. (laughs) And so I went went to Maine. (laughs) Wow. So where did you go to college? I went to Humboldt State. Up in Where, Northern California. Oh, so you went all the way across the country. If you can't like as f- I was literally oh getting as far as wow. I could. Yeah. Like how far away from home can I be, but still it be in the CSU in the, you know, state college system. So I don't have to pay out of state tuition. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. Did yeah. you do that each summer then? No. So my first summer I went to Maine and then the other summers I had a job or I had financial aid. So I was able, and I had moved out of the dorms after my freshman year. So I had a house with friends. So I was able to make sure that I didn't have to go back. Well, I'm glad that you got out, got out of that system. Are you still in touch with your family members? Have you kind of distanced yourself? Um, I'm definitely distant. So I'm no contact with many of them still have contact with my younger brother and sister and my sister-in-law is one of my best friends. That's the That's family I've latched onto. Yeah. Uh-huh. What was the process of disconnecting with all these people, including your, like your parents or, you know, is that, do you feel a sense of loss from that? Or you feel, do you feel good about it? I feel good. I did a lot of, I mean, obviously there's like a lot that led up to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom and I had a just very strange, strange, (laughs) that and strained (laughs) relationship. You know, there would be times that went by that we wouldn't talk. Like once I left for college, but we had a very tough relationship. I mean, I was acting out, right? So like Mm -hmm. I was doing drugs and, you know, I was promiscuous and I was lying and got kicked out of high school. And then it led up to, there were stretches of time where, you know, we were no contact. And then, you know, I got sober in 2013 and started really looking at my life and and healing and cleaning things up and really looking at, at the relationships that were hurting me and that like did not feel good. You know, that was one of those relationships. I needed to set boundaries. You know, when we set boundaries with people who don't have boundaries, that doesn't go well usually. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, no, it was not a, a difficult decision. It was kind of just like the nail in the in the coffin where I was like, this is a very painful, like continually painful relationship. And I you know, set a boundary and it was not welcomed and just like, you know, I'm, I'm done. I have a kind of a similar situation with my brother who's in recovery and he treated me really horribly this a couple of years ago. And I, now I've kind of come to the point where I can, I can be around him, but I'm not, I don't think the relationship will ever be the same, but it's hard because a lot of people put pressure on you mm-hmm. to, to reconcile. Have you felt that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> For sure. I mean, there was even, you know, pressure in the family of like, she's your mom. I do have limited contact with my stepdad and we'll text once in a while, but it's tough because especially with the the mother daughter piece and, you know, people don't, don't know the ins and outs. And so I'm kind of like, well, if you want to stick your nose in and tell me that I need to reconcile, (laughs) I'm going to tell you exactly why that's not going to happen. And then ask them again. So do you think that I should really have this person in my life? (laughs) Right. I think that for each person, it's so different. I I have a very close friend who had a toxic mom and she Mm -hmm. took care of her up till the time that she died. And it, and it kind of ate away at her, you know, I mean, I would never judge her for her decisions. I was completely supportive, but I also would have understood if she walked away from that as well, Mm -hmm. because her mom was pretty awful to her. So yeah. Oh, wow. So you mentioned your recovery. So Mm -hmm. you said that you started using drugs when you were quite young. 
Yes. People say like uh, that pot is the gateway drug, but I think that cigarettes are probably more of the gateway drug because it started with smoking. I was smoking by the time I was 12. Yeah. And then it just like quickly escalated (laughs) into alcohol, marijuana, LSD, mushrooms, meth, cocaine, like literally anything that, that we could get our hands on to. We were all for it. So that continued from, so from 12, from smoking into middle school with drinking. And then finally, by the time I was 33, I had decided that something needs to give. You know, when you look around at the relationships and you're looking around and you would realize that you're the common denominator in everything that's blown up and, you know, why your life is not, (laughs) it's no longer, you know, other people, right? Like I Mm -hmm. finally looked around and I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) It is me that needs. (laughs) Oh my gosh. To get their act together. (laughs) And how did you go about doing that? Getting sober? I had been living in Seattle. I mean, there were a lot of, this had been like years in the making. It wasn't just like, Oh, I woke up and decided not to use it. <laughs> right, right. It was years and lots of like negotiations of like, well, I'm not, I, you know, I won't drink shots, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll do this or I'll stop drinking by 12 and I, you know, won't do this drug, but we'll only do that. That, yeah. As soon as I started drinking, it was like blacked out. The whole not drink after 12 was great in theory, but like when you're blacked out, you just keep doing, <laughs> you just keep drinking. So it didn't matter if 12 came. I realized when I was 32, I was like, I need to get out of Seattle. I need to just like blow, not blow my life up, but I need to do, I need to get out of here and be somewhere else. And so I was going to move to San Diego and then the opportunity to move to the Cayman Islands came up, which was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I thought, this is it. Fresh start. I'm going to go and start my life over. And so I did that, but I brought my drinking with me. I mean, I wasn't even there for 24 hours and I was like thrown up in the bushes. (laughs) I laugh now, but (laughs) so I brought like my drinking problem with me and realized that I was going to destroy this opportunity if I didn't quit drinking. So October 7th, well, October 6th, I was like, okay, I'm not drinking tomorrow. And, and it just was like, I'm going to take a 30, 30 day break. And we'll reassess. But I deep down, I really knew like this needed to be it if I was ever going to reach any of my goals. And so what were you doing professionally after college? We haven't really talked about your career. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, and this is like another twist and turn. So I have a degree in psychology and I minored in feminist studies. And so I was working in a domestic violence shelter while I was in college. And when I moved to Seattle, like I have gone in and out of drug and alcohol abuse. So at the time when I started working as a chemical dependency professional, I was not in active abuse. I moved from college up to Seattle and went back to school and got my certification. And I was a chemical dependency treatment provider. So I did assessments. I worked in the schools with kids. I led programs in other domestic violence shelters. So I was doing that for three or four years and was burnt out. I was not taking care of myself. I mean, social services, especially working with youth like that, like unless you have like top top self-care, which I didn't even know if it it was like massages and pedicures and stuff. It wasn't like, make sure you're in therapy and that you're, (laughs) you know, taking care of your own stuff. And so, you know, a lot of my own stuff did come up. And so I ended up leaving the social services and went to beauty school. So I was a hairstylist for seven years because I was like, I just want a job where I can get in and get out. Like, I don't want to have like emotional baggage, you know, when I went to work. So yeah, so I did hair and then what started to kick in another round of, of drug and alcohol abuse was that I was also working in uh, the restaurant industry. So two industries, hair and food that are known for drug and alcohol abuse. Yeah. And so when you went to the Cayman Islands, what kind of job were you pursuing there? Yeah, I was a server because I had been working in a sushi restaurant in Seattle. So I just went 
Um, and got a job there as a, a server and a bartender in a sushi restaurant. And then my last job, yeah, my last job working for somebody else was um, at the yacht club there, the Georgetown Yacht Club. Oh my gosh. So then was it when you were in Cayman Islands that you that you got sober or? Yeah. 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 So six months after I moved there, uh-huh. it was, you know, I was blacking out and that just became like, the norm that I was just a blackout drinker, no matter like how much I tried to like, Oh, I'm only having one or we're only going to have a couple. It just like, if I had three drinks, like it was over. Yeah. And just, I mean, a couple like big scares where I passed out in public. I mean, that is not the place to do that. Like there were like horror stories of people disappearing, you know, women disappearing. Oh my gosh. You know, (laughs) Oh my gosh. How scary life or death matter. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this isn't fun anymore. And my friend who I had moved in with, he was sober too. So it was just really embarrassing that I was moving into this home that he invited me into and he was sober. And now here's just like, you know, I was coming in trashed, which Mm. was so disrespectful. I'm watching this show on HBO Max right now called The Flight Attendant. Have you heard about that? It's basically about a woman who's an alcoholic and kind of a blackout alcoholic. I read the book and I was not as crazy about the book, but the show is very compelling. It makes you never want to drink again, of course, because I mean, this woman, she started drinking with her dad when she was very young and so had been drinking for the rest of her whole life and flying all over the place and constantly drunk and blacking out. The story is that she wakes up in Thailand. The book, I think, is Dubai, but she wakes up in Thailand and there's the man she's been sleeping with for the last couple of days is dead in her bed. She doesn't remember what happened. So it's a thriller. Yeah. I don't know if you'd be interested in it or not. It might be too close to home, but it's very interesting show. So yeah. yeah. So did you, were you able to get sober on your own or did you have treatment or? Yeah. So when I, yeah, I did it by myself and I will definitely credit, you know, the friend that I had moved in with on the Cayman Islands. We ended up dating for four years and he just really helped me and was a huge support, but it was really reading books. I mean, there was definitely white knuckling involved Uh where it was basically like isolate, don't go out, don't go to the places I used to go, not be out in public. Cause like, it's a huge party. I mean, I think any uh, island really, right? But like when you think of when you go on vacation to like Mexico, yes, right? It's like that. So like imagine that, but that's just your life. Like that is your lifestyle. Uh-huh. And so that's just how things were on the island. You know, you can't go out to dinner. I mean, it's tiny. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business. So you couldn't go out to dinner without seeing your friend who's the bartender and everyone's, you know, shots and hooking each other up. And it was basically like, I know I'm just staying home. So I dove into fitness. I dove into yoga, I went through yoga teacher training. I was just really trying to reconnect with anything basically that was like not going out and drinking. Wow. That's radical that you did it on your own mm-hmm. after a lifetime, you know, it's really amazing. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because my brother, as I mentioned, being in recovery, he goes to AA. He's, I mean, he did it through AA. And even with AA, it's been a struggle. So yeah. you're the second yeah. person I've interviewed who did it on her own. Really? So, yeah. I interviewed a woman named Cindy Van Arnhem a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, she did it on her own as well. But the, one of her tactics I thought was kind of funny was she decided to move to, to two countries where drug and alcohol use was punishable by death. <laughs> She she moved to Indonesia. She taught in Jakarta for a few years and then she moved to Dubai. (laughs) And she purposely did that because she knew that it was a no-no to drink or do drugs there. Whatever it takes, right? Yeah. But then she went back to Canada and started drinking again, of course. You know, I mean, that's something to really be proud of that you were able to do that on your own. It's amazing. So so then you moved to Italy. Tell us about that. Yeah. So in, oh geez, 2017, my ex and I split and I was like, well, the island is like really expensive. And I was just kind of done. Like, I just felt really complete, like with the relationship, with the island. It just, it felt like my time there 
was done, finished. And Italy has always been on my vision board. I came here when I was 23, back in 2003, and I stood on Ponte Vecchio, and which is in Florence, and thought, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I am going to live in Italy one day. And I thought it was like, I'll retire there. Like, this isn't going to happen until my 60s, at least. <laughs> and so... Once I had started my business in the Cayman Islands, I mean, just everything started to open up because now I had a way to make money. I didn't have to speak the language. I could take my business on the road. I can work from anywhere. It just like work speed fast forwarded everything to like, this is actually possible now. So I quickly found a school because because of the visa situation without going to school, I could have been here 90 days. And I said, you know, that's not, mm. that's not like living. That's just like, I hung out in Italy for like a couple months. Like that, <laughs> that didn't feel, it didn't feel like living for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found a school, a language school that I signed up for a year. So I got a year visa and I thought I'll, I either find my husband or I'll just figure something out by the end of the year so that I can, can, can stay here. Wow. How long did it take you to find your husband? It took 10 weeks. <laughs> Seriously? Oh my God. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and where did you meet him? On the beach. In, Is, he, oh in my gosh. Is he Italian? <laughs> he is. Yeah. Oh, wow. You've got quite the love story there, boy. Oh, my God. What's his name? His name's Stefano. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Congratulations. And so what is it like living in Italy? You know, I really, Italy's on my vision board, too. I've never been there. And so I, I, yeah, so I'm completely ignorant, except for what I've heard from friends. It's interesting. I think sometimes, you know, like, oh, the the novelty has worn off because you have to deal with government and, you know, passport situation and visa stuff. And I still like, I'm not fluent. We speak English at home because it's just after a long day of work, it's just easier for Mm -hmm. both of us. So that's an issue is my struggling with the language. Um, Even though I have a tutor and I've like been in and out of school, it's, just it's so chill like it's not as chill as the island Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I mean in America like the focus is really on like it's I mean it's just so like capitalistic and just like more 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 and go 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 and Italy it's just like it's chill like well when we were allowed to be in restaurants you know dinner you go in for dinner and they're not rushing you. You enjoy your meal, especially if you're with like a large group of people and you have first plate, second plate, all the plates, mm-hmm. <laughs> dessert, um, you know, coffee at the end, everyone's just hanging out and there's no rush. Like it's just, it's just relaxed. It's quite different from the, the hustle and bustle. I mean, plus we're not in like a large city. We're in a beach town. So Mm. I don't know if that would feel different if we, I'm sure it might, like if we were in like Florence or Milan, but we're in like a a smaller city, like a, yeah, a small beach town outside of Pisa. Because you were a feminist studies minor, I will ask you this question because I basically went off to Japan when I was 21 and I didn't speak the language, very similar to you. And I met my husband there as well. He's British. Yeah, so I have some overlaps with you in, in that way, but I had a hard time in Japan because I was a, a fairly new feminist. What is it like as a woman in Italy? Is it what you expected or any thoughts about that? Good question. I will preface this with like, I am very much a hermit. And so I really, I keep to myself. I work from home. I don't think I have like a, the typical quote unquote, like typical life where we're like going out all the time. And cause that seems to be very much part of the Italian culture. And you know, the friends that I did have, they speak English or they're and or they're expats. So some of this is like, you know, from what I've heard, but that it's still very 
like male dominated. I think this it depends on the region too, but it's still very much machismo. Ugh. And it's hard because I don't speak the language. So like if I were to pursue the language and say like, you know, I've been cut in front of many times, but men and women. But <laughs> if that were in America, I'd be like, what's up? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, and we'd have a conversation about it. But here it's, I, I'm just kind of like, uh, like, are you doing this because you don't see me because I'm a woman because you think you're more important. So, hmm. um, you know, there's lots of, of questions. And then when you're nervous and trying to speak a language, like things are definitely not going to come out correctly. And so I end up just like stuffing a lot. It's interesting, because I remember when we were in Paris in 2001. And we went to Paris Disneyland with, we had a four-year-old son at the time. And there were a lot of Europeans there from other countries that were really pushy. I remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was kind of shocked by it. <laughs> I joke all the time, but I'm like, there is no concept of how to form a line in Italy, <laughs> like at all. And so like when COVID came and we had to be like, there's lines, like there's markers where it tells you to how far to be. Oh people. yeah. I'm like, Oh, this is such a blessing. Oh my God. Six feet is my bubble. <laughs> did, they, did people follow that? They do because the first round, like everybody was like on high alert because of how fast it spread, how many people yeah. were dying, like how quickly everything happened here. Yeah. So yes, people were very much and like people were freaking out and mm-hmm. saying, you know, stay away from me. Like, where's your mask? Like that sort of thing. Um, mm, I think really? More lax now, but in stores and stuff, there's limits on how many people can be in there. So I'm like, this is, <laughs> perfect. doesn't change. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> that's funny. Oh my gosh. That's your perfect type of Italy, huh? I was going to ask you about the coronavirus that, you know, Italy shut down. What is it like in Italy now? I, we, I mean, I haven't heard anything recently. Yeah. So the, there's, <laughs> so at first the government was letting the regions kind of handle it. And then we saw how that worked because like the, it was really contained in the North and then, you know, Milan and Bergamo shut, shut their borders and then people fled down to the South and then pretty soon, like it's all over Italy. And so then the government took over where, you know, we went into lockdown where it was like everything was closed. You had to have papers when you went to the grocery store, only one person per household could go. Like it was very, very stressful and so stressful. So then this time what's going on is that the regions are managing themselves again. So in Tuscany, we keep going back and forth between yellow and orange zone. So it's yellow, orange, red. Um, So we were in red for the holidays to kind of try to keep things at bay for Christmas and New Year. But uh, in Tuscany, we keep going back between yellow and orange. So right now we're in orange, which, which means that restaurants, if they're open, it's only for takeaway. Shops are closed unless it's I don't know. This is like, like some of the makeup stores are open. And so there's some other stuff shops that are open where I'm like, those are essential. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is odd. <laughs> yeah. It's basically, oh, and we're not allowed to leave our city unless it's for work or, mm. or an emergency. So I've just been going on like bike rides out in the farm land just to try to get out of the house. But mm-hmm. it's basically like stay put. So it's still, yeah, you still can't leave your city. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when we're in yellow, we can. So mm-hmm. next time we're back in yellow, uh-huh. I am getting out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So over the summer, like I went down South. I was down in Pompeii. I went to Sorrento and Capri. So summer, it felt like we were back to normal. And then of course, uh-huh. Yes, I think it's very similar in the UK, because my mother in law and sister in law are not able to, I think they're still not able to travel outside of five miles outside of their radius around their house. Mm -hmm. And they've complained about that a lot. In a way, we kind of wish we had more strict, (laughs) because in the US, it's been so hard to control. So it's hard to know what to wish for, really. Absolutely. Well, our borders have never been open to Americans this mm-hmm. whole time. So I had a retreat here um, in Luca planned in October, and I just had to cancel that because oh. between the vaccines backed up, 
I don't think we'll be able to get the vaccine for at least another year. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's what the... Oh, my God. Is it because <laughs> the U.S. is is hogging at all or... I don't know what's going on. There's the Pfizer, the Moderna, and then there's like some Astra something or other. AstraZeneca. Yeah. Yes. So that is what will be available for all of the people who aren't at risk. So, Uh you know, don't, don't need it. So they're handing out the Pfizer and Moderna to high risk. So it's, it's started to roll out, I believe, but things are getting caught up. So best case scenario, like ideally it's a year, but it's Italy. So it probably wow. takes a year and a half at least. Huh. So. I'm surprised to hear that. So I read something in the news that these are predictions with what President Biden is working with their drug companies to do. And I thought I read that they would have enough vaccines by the end of the year for the rest of the world. I thought, it, or maybe that was next year within a year or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, I have read that the U S and the UK and I can't remember what other country ha- have been kind of hogging a lot of vaccines, which is really concerning to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame Italy and the other countries for not wanting to let Americans in. I mean, <laughs> close your borders as long as you can. <laughs> exactly. You know, well, Italy is really, it's, you know, the different areas are really, they need the tourism. Oh, I bet. All of this happened over the summer. They opened up the borders to the EU. Then people were coming in, not wearing masks. Yeah, right. um, it was crowded. So great. Okay. So, you know, there were a lot of Germans that had come, a lot of people from France, but they weren't following any guidelines. And so, of course, our numbers went back up. Yeah. And then it was just, oh my gosh. We haven't, yeah, we haven't been able to manage it since then. Well, it's a good thing that you're a hermit. That's, that's, I feel like I've, I've become more hermit like. <laughs> so <laughs> I really do miss my, I miss my friends. I miss my family. You know, yeah. I miss singing in public, things like that. But I miss yeah. theater, but I have become more hermit like myself. Nothing really changed for me. <laughs> It's so interesting to learn you're you're a hermit because on social media you're very open and kind of out loud. Live you live your life out loud. You you have purple hair. You have tattoos. Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know I used to think back when I was using you know I was the life of the party. I was always out. I was out multiple times a week. And now it's and Italy's like it's a late country, so usually starts at nine mm-hmm. ten and I'm like oh can we go please <laughs> <laughs> and what about what about your husband is he has he adapted to your quieter uh, and your earlier hour ways <laughs> well I think we've met in the middle we'll have dinner sometimes at like eight o'clock which is I, that sounds late for Americans, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really That's early. For <laughs> yeah. So, but it's like, well, let's eat dinner and then we can relax and watch some TV and hang out versus eat late. What we just go straight to bed. So we have to work tomorrow. So that was my, my explanation of why we eat so early. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. um, but he's, he's not in recovery, but he also doesn't drink. And he's not like a club guy or mm-hmm. same thing. Like he's covered head to toe in tattoos, neck to toe. You know, what you see is is not what you would think would be happening, but he's very much a hermit as well. Just very to himself and, you know, we'll hang out with family and stuff, but he's not a, a club kid or a party mm-hmm. kid. Obviously it was meant to be for you to meet him, that mm-hmm. he's not a partier. He, he's not a drinker. You, you obviously didn't know that when you met him on the beach, probably. No, I mean, it was like, that's one of the first things that I tell people, like, especially when I was dating, because if your life revolves around drinking and going out, then this isn't going to work. And right. so I wanted, that was like very straight to the point, like I don't drink and then see their reaction. And so, yeah, it was definitely perfect. Perfect. Time. Yeah. Is it hard not to drink wine there? Because wine is I so. I don't like wine. Oh, that's so it was good. like not a problem. <laughs> It all tastes like vinegar to me. I know people are going to be like, what? (laughs) No, that's that's good. Yeah, all red wine tastes like vinegar. It's like just, it's all very bitter and Uh full acquired taste thing is very foreign to me because if I don't like the taste of it, why would I drink it multiple times until I've acquired a taste. So I was never refined. I was always drinking Jameson and ginger ale. That's actually a really positive thing for you living in Italy because there's mm-hmm. so much wine everywhere I know. So yeah. 
That's good. So let's talk a little bit about your business. I knew I needed to get out of the restaurant industry because it was just, I was unhappy. I was miserable, not unhappy. I was like miserable and being on a party island and in an industry where drinking while you're working was totally accepted and okay. Uh, I just needed to get out of there. And so interesting. So I had started going through yoga teacher training. And so my thought was that maybe I'll be a yoga teacher and travel and maybe do some coaching on the side. And I shattered my wrist at work. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So I have a plate and seven pins in my dominant hand, my right hand. So that ended my dreams of doing yoga. Like I can barely do down dog. Oh, mm-hmm. so it was like, well, I guess that answers that question <laughs> that mm-hmm. handles that handles that situation. So that's when I dove into coaching and I was really good at helping people with their marketing. And I had a dream one night that I was a marketing coach after kind of fumbling around. I wasn't really sure what kind of coach I wanted to be. And I like sat up in bed and I was like, that's it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sounds like you are a very intuitive person. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I've been, I try to fight it, but yeah, I think I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you set out to find a husband when you moved to Italy. <laughs> it's like, yes. Wow. I'm very intentional. I'm yes. a magic manifester for sure. Yes. I love it. I've been to your website and a, you've got a lot of uh, love notes from your clients saying mm-hmm. how much you've helped them. The business is me. So it used to be called Traveling Wild Woman, but my Facebook group now is called Wild Woman Rising. My focus is really helping women share their story, share what they've gone through in a way that feels good as a way to really connect with their audience, their own businesses. As you know, as we know, telling your story is really healing and very cathartic. And so using story as a way to heal yourself, heal others, let people know that they're not alone, help people feel seen and heard and believed also while building your business. It looks like on your website, you say you give 10% of your income to organizations, especially that benefit Black women and Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter. That's Mm -hmm. great. Excellent. There's a whole conversation around the pay gap, not just in the world, but in the coaching industry. Ah, really? um, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And how it's, it's very much a white privileged business where oftentimes, especially black women, but black and brown and indigenous women are overlooked. And so yeah, there's a, a big conversation and acknowledgement of the, the disparity that's going on. It must have been weird to be out of the U.S. when all the Black Lives Matter protests were happening this summer. It was, yeah, surreal. Just, you know, that sense of helplessness. Yeah, just watching. And then, the, you know, the, of course, so the conversations are happening over here as well, mm-hmm. where people are just appalled at, you know, the police brutality and the access to guns and weapons. And right. just, you know, there's a, a large conversation. Of, well, yeah. Um, then there was the insurrection. And I mean, mm-hmm. I think the rest of the world must just think that the U.S. has completely lost its marbles. Any marbles we had left. <laughs> For sure. It's just such a, it's such a trip to, I remember being in China. My sister lived in China when I was in Japan. And I remember walking around Chengdu, China one one day with her and some Chinese people came up to us and started asking us what we thought about, I guess it would have been, I think it was Reagan was in power then. Yeah. And wanted to know what we thought about Ronald Reagan. And it's like, it's so embarrassing. Mm It's embarrassing. Right. Well, and everyone would, you know, oh, you're American. So and they'd be like, so Trump. And I'm like, oh, dear. I know. Like, I know you probably don't want to admit you're American. So do you feel like you still deal with a lot of PTSD from your childhood and your sexual abuse? Good question. I mean, yeah, it's definitely still impacting my life and something that I'm still, you know, I don't know if I'll ever be rid of it, you know, learning how to trust people and conversations with my husband and it affects intimacy and nowhere near what it used to look like, but still seeing like where it sneaks in, Yeah, you know, where old beliefs creep in and, you know, it's that worthiness stuff and believing in yourself. Like it's all, 
it's all tied together. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, and I, I found that because I'm a survivor as well. And I find that things happen. They take me off guard when I don't expect it. You know, that's mm-hmm. the way PTSD works. So, you know, given what you've been through, it, it was so brave of you to go to a country all, all on your own. I mean, you went to Italy and did you go to the Caymans on your own as well? I did. Yeah, that's really brave. Thank you. You know, I did that when I was 18, when I took the bus from Temecula over to Portland, Maine. You took the bus? Really? (laughs) Yeah, they gave us a a travel stipend and I wanted to spend the least amount of it because I was, you know, a broke college student. So the Greyhound bus, (laughs) three days. Oh my gosh. But but travel has um, always served me well as a way to get away from my life, my old life and starting fresh. So uh-huh. yeah, your whole life has been about starting over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you won't have to do that again now that you're exactly. in Italy. Yeah. I mean, does your husband ever want to live in the US? Do you think he'll live in Italy forever? I don't know if we'll live here forever. I made it very clear. Again, like I'm very uh, direct on my dates. So I made Mm -hmm. it very clear that we would never be living in the U.S. again. (laughs) Uh He was fine with that. Uh (laughs) And I said, if if you want to go live there, like we can do the paperwork and like you can go do your thing in the U.S. Like if that's really what you want to do, but I will not be joining you. to know what you want. Yeah. When my husband and I first got married, I kind of thought we would live part of the time in Britain and part of the time here. It hasn't worked out that way, mostly because I've supported him in terms of business opportunities. Now it might be more feasible now that I have my own business, but previously it just wasn't going to work out. So who knows? Maybe someday we'll move to the UK. It still could happen. So Yeah, yeah, Stefano's dream is to move to Brazil. So Oh, that's right. You mentioned that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, it'd be interesting to live in a country that was new to both of you. Indeed. Yeah. I said, you know, neither of us speak Portuguese. So maybe it's somewhere like Greece. No, that Greece is kind of warm too, isn't it? It's <laughs> someplace mm-hmm. a little bit less warm. We need someplace for my menopause. <laughs> yes, that's right. I don't know. Maybe Norway. Lovely. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Norway, I don't think is quite as chill as Italy though. So yeah. So what would you tell your 21-year-old self? Mm, Get into serious therapy. Ah. And not just like talk therapy because that can only take you so far, but just really like explore healing, healing what hurt you and, and healing those parts because it will chase you and, you know, chase you down until you look at it in the eyes. Is there a particular type of therapy that helped you more than others? I mean, what really helped was somatic and EMDR. Because the the last EMDR that I did was to get really flat about my mom. Mm-hmm. And I told my therapist, I said, I just don't want to give a shit anymore. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to be activated. I don't want to be, I just want to be even keeled, like, what happened, happened. We're moving on. I feel like that for the most part, Mm -hmm. um, it's easy, you know, when I don't live there and no no contact, right? I feel like this is the most peace that I've ever had. Oh, that's good. Is EMDR the thing with the eyelids? I've heard that that's very helpful in trauma, dealing with trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you don't have to relive the trauma in order to process it. So that's, that's the selling point. <laughs> That's good. So have you been reading or watching anything recently that has inspired you? So the books that I always recommend to my clients are the books Plain Big by Tara Moore, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And I'm just getting into Existential Kink with Carolyn Elliott. Hmm. And then the book Pussy by Mama Gina. I've heard of Gay Hendricks, the author, but Mm -hmm. that's the only, wow, interesting. Yeah, those are the main books that I recommend to all of my clients because it seems to hit all of the things that we end up talking about. Okay, I will look into them. Good recommendations. And my final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? So there's actually, there's two women that come to mind. So I found them early on in my recovery. I think like maybe, I don't know, a year in Laura Frazier and Kelly Fitzgerald Yunko, I think is how you say her last name. And like when I was getting sober, 
I, one of my biggest fears was that I was just, I was not going to be cool anymore. And I didn't know anybody, any young, cool women that I could imagine being friends with who were also sober. Mm. And I read their stories and Kelly and I actually have like a very similar story. She moved down to Mexico and was like partying and, and she got sober and she's had a baby and, you know, met her husband down there and reading those stories early on in my sobriety, it showed me what was possible And it showed me that I wasn't alone. It showed me that there were other young, hip, cool chicks with tattoos and fun (laughs) hair, right? That were also deciding that they no longer wanted to be using drugs and alcohol anymore. And so those, those were like the stories that I really had to latch onto because I didn't have proof anywhere else. And so those are the two women that come to mind who paved the way. I mean, I think... Kelly has like maybe a year more sobriety than I, like she's been in recovery for a year longer. And I think Lara is right around my date too, but just seeing them like recover out loud has been, had just really changed things for me. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Well, this has just been such a pleasure getting to know you, Shannon. Thank you so much for your time. It's yeah. Yeah. It's going to be great now that I see you on social and I actually feel like I know you. So it's wonderful. Yeah. And you've really made just something incredible out of your life, given your difficult early start. So you have a lot to be proud of. Thank you. Yeah. Great to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. What time is it there now? Um, It's almost eight o'clock. Oh, almost time for dinner. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Shannon. Have a great evening. You're welcome. You too. Take care. Okay. Shannon's story is incredible. I think she's one of the most resilient people I've interviewed, and that's saying quite a lot. She's overcome so much in her life to become confident, vibrant, and adventurous. I admire her so much. You can find further details about Shannon and see some photos on my website. Go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Next week, I have a real treat and something completely different. Did you know penguins can teach us about grit and resilience? I interviewed my former college English professor, Chuck Bergman, who is an award-winning writer and photographer, and his equally accomplished wife, Susan Mann, who worked for the Gates Foundation and Brene Brown and is a resilience expert in her own right. Chuck and Susan took on a quest to see each of the world's 18 species of penguins in the wild. Chuck documented their adventures in his beautiful and compelling book, Every Penguin in the World, A Quest to See Them All. Learn how penguins are creatures of hope and resilience. I love my conversation with them, and I know you will too. Do you know someone with a grit and resilience story who would be great to interview? Or maybe you might like to suggest a guest for my new podcast, Companies That Care. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.